everybody. Welcome to another episode of the Comic Source Podcast. I'm your host, Jace. This is a spotlight on an upcoming book from Vault Comics called The Blue Flame. Uh, it's from one of my favorite creators, Christopher Cantwell, the writer, and uh, he's joining me to talk a little bit about that, and we'll probably talk a few other things uh, as well, like maybe some Iron Man. Uh, we'll see. So, uh, Christopher, glad to have you back on the show. Good to see you, my man. It's, it's good to be back. Thank you for having me. Yeah, so uh, I, before we even talk about what the, the Blue Flame I is about, uh, because I think it's a very interesting, I've read some other interviews and some statements you've put out about the book, and I think it's a very interesting, especially the timing, uh, because when I think when you first start addressing this sort of dichotomy that you're uh, exploring in the book, people think, oh, that must have come from the pandemic, but this is really even uh, before that. Uh, but what, I, what I'm curious about, First, before we start diving into that and you let our listeners know what the uh, the book's about, why why Vault? Why did you choose to go with uh, Vault? I mean, they, they are an up-and-coming uh, publisher, um, but I, I'm just curious if there was another reason beyond that uh, that you felt this was the best place for this uh, story to live. I um, my, my short answer is because they're awesome. I mean, they, they, <laughs> they put out incredible books. I, I don't, I can't, it's been... I've had, a, I think I have a vault book on my pull list for the last four years. I mean, I, they, their, their material is so great and there's such attention to detail from soup to nuts in terms of not just this, the creative and the story and the people they bring on and how they put their teams together and the synergies, but also um, just the look and feel of their books. And when I say feel, I mean like the tactile experience of mm -hmm. the comic book is just so phenomenal they they really just they have such mindfulness when it comes to every piece of the process that i loved it as a reader and i don't remember because this was something that started coming together at the end of 2018 was when i think i first started talking to them about blue flames so this was a while ago and you know i think tim daniel might have reached out to me on uh Twitter or something, or just might have responded to something, and and then from there I started talking to the guys. But I, I really was like, oh, yeah, Vault. Like, I, I want to do something with Vault. They just their books are such have such pedigree to them. Um, and then in my in an initial conversation with Adrian Wassel, um, I realized that he was an incredible editor very very quickly. Um, his story sense is just uh, impeccable. And, and I, I don't throw that around. I mean, I, there are a lot of producers <laughs> and people I've worked with in my TV and film career um, where they start to give you thoughts or feedback and my eyes just, you know, guys roll over white, you know, like ready to kill someone or, you know, it's like a waste of my time or, and that's not true for, 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 everyone I worked with in TV and film, I think the people that I ended up doing some really great work with, I, I try to hold on to them, right? Whether it be a producer or a network or a studio, that someone who understands story and is not a writer is um, a gift. And I was so wildly impressed by Adrian as an editor from the moment he gave me feedback on the initial ideas around Blue Flame. And I was like, man, I really want to work with this guy. And he immediately made it better. And it's been that way since. And then, you know, Damien on the business front and, and PR stepping in and, and I'm doing, there, there's apparatus I, I haven't seen yet um, um, in the comic book business um, in the way that they just guide a book kind of down the assembly line, very careful, very handmade. Um, it's a really impressive operation. Yeah. And I, I, I like that you kind of called out the, you know, the two brothers, what they specifically are so good at. I, I've met them both at San Diego comic-con before. And here's the thing that I always come away when I have a conversation with Adrian or, or Damien, um, usually at the vault booth, these guys put out great comics and they certainly are good at what they do, you know, both on the business and PR front and, and on the, the editing storyteller front. But I feel like, you know, it's a small company. These guys put their heart and soul into it and their passion. And you know why they do it? It's because they love comics. They're fans too. They yeah. just love comics and they want good comics and good stories out there. They're not, they're not an IP farm. 
right? They're yeah. Not, they're not, they're not, they're not building to sell or to adapt. I mean, in success, yes. And I know they've done, done that already. Um, a couple of times, I think, or, or there's, a, I think some in the, in the hopper, but they're out to make a very, very, very good comic book mm-hmm. period full stop. And that I have a huge amount of respect for that because even in my short time in comic books compared to, you know, working in TV and film, there's such a, there's really a lot of people trip over their own shoelaces trying to get back to where I was, you know what I mean? Where right. they're like, and then we can, and it's like, well, yeah. like, can we, let's make sure the book is good and then move forward. Yeah. I, I agree. Yeah. So many or, people, well, or, like, or at the end of the day, we have a great book and we're done and you know, we're not going to go compromise it or right. screw it up or, you know, have somebody go do something crazy with it. We have a great book and that, that was the goal. Number one. Yeah, exactly. It's about making a good comic, not, Oh, well, I wanted to make this TV show or movie and, but I needed something to take. It, it, they don't see it as a stepping stone. This is yeah, the, like, let me yeah. do, let me do, let me do work for hire, you know, for nothing <laughs> so that I can then grind this writer and idea into something that I can, so I can go play at what I think is the big boy table in Hollywood. Yeah. It was like, come on, man, stop it. Well, it goes back to something that you and I have, have talked about, uh, you know, several times that you've been on the show uh, cause like you said, you're here, you are going from, from TV, you've had successful TV and you still, you know, have things in, in development, paper girls and whatnot, but you just love comics too. And that's, and you love telling stories and, and here you are. And I've heard you say before, you know, if you had to choose between the two, you know, this is your, your first love telling stories. And, uh, so that brings us back around to, uh, to the blue flame where you're going to explore these really interesting, uh, ideas. So why don't you tell everybody what, what the blue flame is, is about. We've teased them enough. What's the, the elevator pitch for this book? Sure. So, um, you know, there's a guy named, um, Sam Browsing and he's a, uh, he's a, uh, union boiler maintenance guy in Milwaukee. So very blue collar, um, living by himself. Um, and, he also moonlights as a kind of DIY vigilante known as the Blue Flame. And he's part of a group of um, DIY vigilantes that call themselves the Night Brigade. And, you know, they're all kind of average Joes and Janes who, uh, you know, work together and, um, you know, try to be a realistic version of a like crime fighting super heroic team. Now at the same time, there's another track to the story, which is the blue flame as he exists in a kind of fantastical cosmic realm. And that is, it's also Sam, but it's, it's Sam in a very idealized, um, kind of archetypal superhero world where he is everything that anyone ever wanted to be a superhero is. And the first issue is him literally in deep space, exploring an unknown sector and uh, arriving on a planet and being captured on that planet. Um, And there's a, a, a much bigger, more complex reason and use for him by a, a collective of, of exotic aliens um, that he comes to understand by the uh, end of the first issue. And that conclusion dovetails with Sam in Milwaukee and a, a kind of unexpected uh, turn of events in his own life. And so that there are those two things that seemingly are very disparate. They're kind of this dialectic where they seem paradoxical, which one is real. And and we're not, we're purposefully keeping it ambiguous and having that Venn diagram become very blurry in the middle as the story progresses over these 10 issues. And um, hopefully it'll make sense why we're doing that, (laughs) but it really is to just, it's really, it's all in his, it's in the perspective of Sam slash the blue flame and, and the realities are, are kind of one in the same, but then also very separate. And there's a lyrical structure to it that I think is pretty, pretty cool. 
And there's a reason behind the madness, I think. Yeah, and, and I definitely sense that. On, you know, you were gracious enough to let me check out the first first issue, uh, and there, you know, there it raises the questions. But I think that starts the process of you thinking about this exploration. It's clear to me that this is sort of your story where you're exploring what it means to be a, and I'm going to say superheroes with super in quotes, because you, you yourself just talked about this Night Brigade team, but nobody actually has superpowers. They're taking it upon themselves to try to make the world a better place. But we as humans are so flawed. You know, I think I, I read somewhere that you said I, isn't the whole idea of becoming a superhero just setting yourself up for disappointment and to be certainly in the age of social media and instant news to be vilified for trying to do the right thing and not reaching that pinnacle? Yeah. I think that their their story, the, the the Milwaukee story is how we call it, you know, that lens on the story um, is purposely meant to feel paltry, you know, um, be, and, and limited because I think the idea of a superhero is wonderful, you know, in, in so much literature that we have and in comics and things, but um, when applied to reality, this idea of a single heroic individual, or even a small group of, of them, um, they can't, like you just said, they can't be everywhere at once. The, the problems of the world are so infinitely complex and seem to be um, growing more so by the day. And, you know, there are, there are little and big fires everywhere at this point. Mm-hmm. I mean, you can, you walk outside and trip over the news. Yep. Right. And, and I, I, I think that, so what good is a, you know, Superman is on the cover of Action Comics picking up that car. And I feel like in 2021, in the midst of all these crises that are happening simultaneously, a person can look at that and go, is that all? Is that all we can get? You know, cool. Can, you can lift a car, but like, what about, you know, and, and I mean, look, that's, it's not a new idea. I think Superman, the books have played with that themselves, but I, the, I, the very idea for this book came out of my own frustrations and feelings of helplessness as just a person in the world. And this was, this was an idea that predated the pandemic. So I only feel more that way now. Yeah. Um, and if we had a Spider-Man or, or somebody, um, they would do a fair amount of good. Um, but what would it, would it amount to a drop in the bucket? And yeah, what would the perception be? And yeah, how would they be uh, regarded by law enforcement? And how would they be um, interpreted by X person over here with this set of beliefs and X person over here with this set of beliefs. And what happens when Spider-Man runs into climate change? You know what I mean? <laughs> Spider-Man doing climate, is he webbing a glacier piece as it's breaking off? Like, you know, I mean, it, it gets absurd to a certain point, the idea of the superhero. Um, and so this book was really just a, it's not a thesis. It's really more like a hy- hypothesis of, of um, is the superhero relevant anymore? Can we do it? And yeah, are we just as are is someone who sets out to be a superhero in a superhero story, um, setting themselves up for failure? And and how much of themselves can they give until there's nothing left? So it's yeah, really it, yeah. and it's a fascinating thing. So I think about it all the time. You know, if Superman, you know, with all the tragedy, like you said, you walk out your house, you trip over the news these days. It seems like we have a mass shooting daily now here in this country. Um, and I can only, okay, well, what would Superman do if faced with all this tragedy? Maybe he, he would go and round up all the guns themselves. And then it's a partisan thing. And then you got people screaming and left and right. And, you know, it just, it's, it's a fascinating thing to think about because we're sort of looking at America as a concept, right? Like for so long, there was consi- the American dream and it was idealized much like a superhero. So it's almost like when you're exploring what it means to be a superhero and how that for many, many years was such a great, fantastical idea of something to aspire to, whether you had superpowers or not, just like America was something to aspire to. And unfortunately, nowadays, 
I, I can't, I don't think that that's true. I don't think that American society is something other countries should be aspiring to. Well, it, it's, you know, I think that, in, you know, the, the superhero, at least how it, in terms of how it originates here in our cultural lexicon in the States is, you know, the superhero is the rugged individual in, um, you know, shinier, cooler clothes that are maybe a little bit more protective, right? I mean, like that's, yeah. The superhero is a is there's an argument to be made that the superhero is a different version of the Western pioneer, right? I mean, so there's there's a lot of that stuff wrapped up in in that concept, and that the the rugged individual um, is an endlessly fascinating concept, but it's also because it because it's also one that's gotten us into a lot of trouble, you know. And I think um, you know recently that's become more stark, you know, and not to say that you can't also paint the picture of a superhero also being an incredible instrumental member of a community, right? Like that's also a version of that. And there's such a duality there. Again, I'll go keep going back to the word dialectic where you're holding these paradoxical ideas that are, are true at the same time, right? And the dialectic of the book is, is represented in these two visual styles and these two these two stories right which is sam the man in milwaukee and sam the 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 um superhuman god almost you know in space um and the task that he's set with and the task that the man is set with are um they they one is like can i get through the next day right and can i save all of humanity and they have the, I'm playing them to have the same emotional weight on his shoulders. Um, that, that's the idea. So the emotional emphasis is the same for the protagonist in both versions of the story. It's just portrayed differently with, with different, um, different stakes, I guess, on, on paper, you know, in text. Yeah, part of it, it sort of seems like you're getting at what, it, what is the truth. And, you know, I used to think uh, maybe naively, before a, a certain somebody was in the, the White House and fake news and, you know, uh, all those sort of alternative facts and all those phrases that have become, uh, you know, part of the lexicon. And I, I saw a fascinating graphic once where there was a, a square on one side of a, of a wall and the other side was a circle. And it said both of these are true. And there was a, a like a block in the middle that when you looked at it from the front, was a sphere, but if you looked at it from the side, it looked like a square. So it could mm -hmm. go into either side. It said both of these are true, right? This is a square, but if you look at it from a 90 degree, if you turn it 90 degrees, it's a circle. It, the truth becomes a matter of, of perspective. Um, and that's, that's, I mean, you know, you know, news cycle aside, that's still the subjective human experience is still like a pretty profound thing to try to grapple with, right? I mean, Everything from what you're talking about are like, is this dress gold or blue or whatever the right. thing was years ago? You know, like it that that's down to like when you ask someone, are you okay? And they say, Yeah. Are they? Did, should you ask again? Are you okay? Yeah. Are they? Should you ask again? At a certain point, they're not going to be okay, for sure, because you're going to keep asking them, and then they're going to go, am I okay? Why does he keep asking? Why does, Creed get, why, does, why does Chris keep asking? Am I okay? And that kind of malleability, I think, is uh, really tricky in that we all deal with it on a human level, but I also think it's really rich for story. Is it possible, and I, and, and I don't know, maybe this is getting into spoiler territory, is it possible that Venn diagram you're, you're talking about where it gets blurry in the middle? Is it possible that it just ends up being two, like one circle to become, or two circles to become one? It, I mean, yeah. is I, it just I a matter that, of perspective? Absolutely. I think that's a hundred percent. I don't think I'm giving anything away by that. I think it's that both are legitimate and both are true, right? It's not the case of Sam goes to sleep every night and he dreams that he's in space. No, right? Uh, it's not even the kind of, maybe a little bit more clever out of the box, you know, the blue, the, the, the blue flame goes to sleep on this distant planet and wakes up every morning and he's in Milwaukee, whatever it is, right? Like his right. dreams are being a boiler maintenance guy in Milwaukee. 
there's no like which one's real which one's not it we're immediately from the beginning of the book the idea is like both are they're both a lived in human experience that's how we're portraying them so that's how we're wanting the reader to 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 take them in and that's got to you know and this exploration and this idea is i'm sure at the root of why you know again we'll use that idea of a superhero with the super in quotes um you know you you yourself said that th this team uh, this night brigade they're taking it upon themselves none of them actually have any special extra human powers uh, they're just out there trying to do the best they can and i think that makes them much more relatable for for all of us either as as parents or spouses mm -hmm. or you know siblings or children just trying to do our best in this world as it stands in 2021 yes exactly and and that that was the goal was to really build a very very human hero team right um that was that was the goal in kind of constructing them and, and especially sam when it came uh when it came time to to build them in terms of uh aesthetics, right? Visually, how they actually looked. We haven't talked at all about Adam Gorham, your, your collaborator, your artist on the series. Uh, did you have a, a pretty clear idea of, of visually how they would look in the head? Uh, or, or, you know, did Adam come on and then you, you bounce things back and forth? Take us through the process of developing the, the visual look of the book. Well, I would say it was both to, to, you know, as a simple answer to your question. But one, I, Adam, like as with every artist I've had the fortune of, of working with is, is take something that I have in a Word document and makes it incredible and phenomenal and indelible in your brain, right? Like, um, you know, I'm the, I'm the boiler maintenance guy and Adam is the cosmic <laughs> hero. Type. You know, like that's how, that's how comics work. They're, 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 the dialectic of the writer and the artist like that's that to me is is kind of it's that's the allegory there but um i i really did have a strong sense of of sam and and at least this this first snapshot of the team um but again adam was the one and and i will say you know and 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 kurt like building them building them out and fleshing them out and, and making them real um, but it is a combination of several different things. You know, I looked at what kind of people actually live in Milwaukee. That was important. You know, I wanted it to have to feel like a cross section of of kind of working class um, people in America from you know cities like that, and that was important to me. Um, I also thought about kind of the the functionality of people in the in in the team. So you know. What would it take for someone to actually try to form a, a hero team in, in our world? It would probably take someone, at least one person who was a little bit more on the fringe than the other members, perhaps. You know, there's going to be the difference between someone who's willing to go along with that and wants to buy into that and play into that. It's probably someone like Sam. He's not the leader, right? The leader is a guy named Crimson Visage who no one knows who he is. Not even the guys, not even the people in the team. They've by this point they call each other by their first names, but they don't they don't know his first name. He never takes his mask off. Yeah. So it's a little bit the brainchild of a guy who's um, a step removed from you know the heart of average society, right? So that that felt real to have that guy kind of at the fore and being the one orchestrating the group and holding it together. I also felt like there needed to be someone that had to bankroll the crazy yeah. stuff they did, right? So. There's a character named Swiftbird who, who has a rich dad. And so she just can kind of write blank checks and max out credit cards. And I think in the one scene we have with them in the first issue, he's, he's asking her about other money. Right. And um, I also wanted them to each have their own kind of individual reasons for being in the group. Um, in addition to, you know, service slash rugged individual, the stuff we just talked about, right? Um, you know, Swiftbird is excited because of the, she's got a, someone made an action figure of her. So there's an image there. There's an identity with it, right? Um, there's a character named The Feet, um, which is a character spelled F-E-A-T. Um, it's a character I've had in my head since um, um, probably I was like for 20 years or so since I was in college, you know, it's just like a big, strong guy. Like, you know, you've got to have the big, strong 
person in the, in the team, you know, there are those different archetypal roles as well, you know, and he also, that's a character who's there cause he's having a great time. Yep. And, um, and Sam, I think is someone from, for me who he's there because for, for me, which is true, what's true of Sam in this story and then in the cosmic story is Sam is someone who is pure of heart. And that is, I wanted the, I wanted that character to be that, that kind of pulse in the team as well. And, and then, you know, there's a character named Thea, or I think her real name is Zola Wallace. Um, and she's also there and similarly a pure of heart and motivated by the same things and they're in a relationship together, right? So there's the kind of romance in the team as well. But they also have like a utilitarian function on the outside where like Sam is Sam is a mechanic and he's good with tools and he can build things and he can fix the car and he can, you know, check this piece of equipment over here and that, um, you know, and, you know, Zola is, Zola is a, uh, a brain, you know, and is very smart and intelligent and strategic and kind of diplomatic. Um, so they all have their roles and how it would actually function in the real world, but also speaking to how, you know, something like the Avengers might work, right? Like, there are those personalities at play. Um, but ultimately, the big thing that holds the whole team together and the, the main reason they're there is it's it's their family. It's the family of choice. And we're going to get into Sam's family in the book, and we will touch on the others' families, other, others families too. But, you know, I don't the, people willing to do something like this and hang out with each other dressed like this, it speaks to um, perhaps a feeling of loneliness or at least a strong desire for connection or a different type of connection than what they have. So there's the family of choice element in it too, which is very, very important. And I, I love stories about families of choice and, you know, Halt and Catch Fire was a story about family of choice. You know, um, I, I like that. Someone, someone, I'm stealing this from someone, but someone talked about Buffy the Vampire Slayer and Angel and how Buffy the Vampire Slayer is a show about um, friends and family who become coworkers and Angel is about coworkers who become family. And I think that's really fascinating. And I, I, I'm one of the weird Angel contrarians where I love, I gravitate towards Angel, where I just love that show. And it, I think it probably for that reason, when someone said that to me, I was like, of course, because I, I love stories like that. That's exactly what Halt was. Yeah, and you can uh, you establish it very well in the first issue, just with the the interplay, the casualness that the Night Brigade has uh, with themselves, and and another thing that's that's fascinating to to get back to this idea of uh, what it takes to be a, a hero. Um, you know, you mention Sam being kind of pure of heart, and the first thing that and, and again, twenty years ago, this wouldn't I would have been yeah, great, you know, this is kind of a Superman type feeling and motivation. Uh, but nowadays, my my immediate thought is, well, but is that enough to be a, a hero? Going back to that idea of yeah. you know, you're setting yourself up for failure because exactly, I wanted to build a good person and then test the good person to see if they can continue to be a good person and just last in the face of a lot of pain and suffering and struggle. And and that that's the story is like let's take the let's take the person who's when they sign up, you go, great. It's look at what here, look at Steve Rogers. Wow. You know what I mean? Like yeah. what a noble soul. And then have him experience shit from now. You know what I mean? Yeah. Not that shit back then was bad. I mean, like, my God, you know what I mean? But put him in the unique situation of now and beat the shit out of him and see what happens. You know? Yeah. And we I mean, we could all do with inspiration, but at the same time. It's got to be relatable. So I, I think, and I think you're straddling that line. I think you're doing a really, uh, this, this whole concept is, is very relevant, obviously. Um, getting back to the work with, uh, with Adam Gorham and, and you mentioned your color artist, also Kurt Michael Russell. Um, I saw where Adam said, this is the most collaborative that he's ever felt on a, on a, uh, a, a project. Um, so, you know, I, obviously you can't speak for him if, if it's necessarily back and forth with design. Uh, but, have you bounced ideas like actual story ideas or beats or, or the timing of anything uh, with those guys? Have you sat around and just kind of broken down any story or is it all visual with those two? I think um, it's, it's all, it's all visual. Um, the, the story, the story is 
with me. And I did, I read that interview this morning too. And I, the first time I saw Adam say that, and it was really nice to, to see him say that. I, I, and I, I love working with both of them and Haas, obviously, but uh, they're just what they're doing. The four of us are kind of that really great group. And then Tim comes in with the design and, and it's, it's wonderful. But, um, you know, my scripts, comic scripts are um, a spectrum in terms of what they look like. Like I've read other writer scripts and I'm like, this is so different than what I do. You know, like mm-hmm. I, I, I rushed out and got, you know, the stranger, uh, I'm sorry, the strange adventures um, director's cut issue, right. Where it had Tom's mm-hmm. scripts in there. And I was like, this is fascinating. I love doing, it. I used to do that all the time with movies and screenwriters that I love too. Um, screenwriting though is so codified in terms of what it looks like. Right. And, and um, so I'm endlessly fascinated. Like I, I just got a glimpse at um, Dan Slot shared some stuff with me about, you know, for, for Bride of Doom and, and uh, which was amazing. I didn't have to do that. I was honored, but it was really cool to, to read it and key into how Dan works too. But my, my scripts are very detailed. And I think there's always a caveat that they come with a grain of salt, right? Um, because the artist is coming in as a collaborator and can, everything is open for conversation anything can be tossed out. It's all um, totally fluid, but I'm just from the school, I think from screenwriting of, I know I have to paint the picture for whoever's coming in to work on the thing. Right. Right. Because it starts with the script. And so I'm, I just have a lot of experience painting the picture that way. And I'm very specific and very detailed about how I paint the picture because I don't want to just, I don't want to just, lay out the blocking. I want to convey tone. Tone is very important. So the description isn't just serving to tell Adam who's in the foreground or who's in the background. It's also paced in a way and written in a way to convey melancholy or action or, you know, humor or things like that. I mean, down to the punctuation, I'm, I'm very, very detailed. Um, so I, I, maybe that's what he meant. I, I, I do think that our Slack channel is like one of my favorite things that I have <laughs> on my phone is the vault Slack channel. Like I want to have, I want to do Slack for all of our comic books where I mean, email chains are fun, but, but like the Slack channel is great. Cause people can come in and say, you know, what about this? What about that? You know, or Kurt will be like, is this too, you know, X color and Adam say, Oh, I love it. You know, come down. I really take a backseat to that stuff because I'm very respectful of the artists and I don't want to get up in their business. But, uh, you know, something that really excites me, I'll chime in, you know, like, should we put some weathered edges around this variant, you know, and, and, you know, I don't know if I should do that. Maybe Tim should. And I'll come in and say, I always love that when that's on something, I always have to pick it up and buy it. So we should do it. You know, so it, that, that kind of ongoing conversation and, you know, like Adrian's in there, uh, as well. So like, um, it's very collaborative in that sense too. I think it goes back to the fact that you guys all love comics. You know, you get you actually yeah. get excited about about yeah. this stuff. Uh, I, I am curious, you know, being that you've had some, uh, you know, big success uh, on the, the small screen with with Halt and Catch Fire, uh, you know, critically acclaimed Eisner uh, nominated Doctor Doom run. You're doing Iron Man now, uh, and and about to kick off this this Vault book. Do you feel it's easier to kind of nail the visual idea of what's in your head as a creator? on tv or or in comics or does it depend on on the situation maybe i'm not i was <laughs> maybe i'll chalk this up to maybe not being a good enough writer but it always looks so wildly different than what i think hmm. now at least with iron man and dr dune i'm like well i know what those guys look like right. but like i could probably pull 10 images up from google right now where they all they look wildly different from each other and are insanely different interpretations of those characters but I've learned to just lean into that and I think I'll quote my writing partner Chris Rogers you know from Halt which was you find you have opinions about things you care about so there's no we would with Halt it was when we first started because it was our first thing ever we ended up with our own show which was crazy we were scared we were going to get lost in the noise and the cacophony of making the show but what we realized was that well, one, as we didn't feel the need to um, 
contribute out of ego or because we felt like we needed to be part of the conversation. We just found out that we were because it was our story to start with, you know, that we opened up and brought all these other people into to share with. And so we had opinions, whether it be in the writer's room, whether it be in the production design meeting, um, in the tone meeting with the director in the edit, um, you know, we had a shitload of opinions, right? Like, and sometimes our opinions, we didn't agree with each other. Right. And, um, so that's, that's been my guy. That's been my lodestar. I think is I will, I, if, if I have an opinion, it's going to show up, you know, I, I'm going to be, I'm going to be saying it before I even realizing, realize I'm saying it. Right. So, um, I don't feel like I need to, to get in there and do that. So I, I, I guess I, I bring that up only to say like, I, I'm in there helping decide what the final version is going to look like, but I also know to kind of surf the wave, right? Yeah. Um, the halt season four, if you make the, the halt pilot, I will say there were moments when I was like, this is like exactly like what we imagined, right? Mm-hmm. But I would have never guessed that we would have ended where we did in halt season four, story-wise or visually, right? Mm-hmm. Um, and the same thing goes for every, book I've worked on, you know, like looking at Martin Marazzo's work, you know, on Ice Cream Man, I would never imagine that he could also imbue such vulnerability in the 15 year old girl's face that he did. And she could fly in some of the panels that are, they have no place in Ice Cream Man, because that's a different book, different book with Will, but, but like, in our book, it works so incredibly well. And the same thing is true with colorists. I mean, you can go look at what Kurt's done or you go look at what, you know, what Frank's done in other books or any of the colorists I've gotten to work with, like they have a signature, but again, um, it really is kind of a guesstimate when you're getting all these people together of like, I kind of have an idea, but you got to kind of just be open and go, right. I don't know, man, let's see. And then when it, that's why everyone gets super excited in the Slack channel. Cause we're like, Holy shit, this book is this awesome. Is, yeah, it's worth right? it, right? Like, this yeah. book is amazing. I think Adrian just said today, he's like, hey, I think this, I think it's the second panel on this page is my favorite in the, in the series yet, you know? And he's like, but I'm, I, it may change tomorrow. Right. You know, it's, it's the real-time discovery and excitement, right? I think that's, it's key to the process. It's not just fun. Well, and it also speaks to trusting your, your collaborators, right? Whether that be, you know, your show running and, you, you know, obviously Halt had just an incredibly talented cast. Everybody was perfect for their roles. Uh, and here with Blue Flame, you know, you, you've got Kurt, you've got Adam, and it seems like you guys have captured lightning in a bottle. They're exactly the creators you should be working with on this project at this time for this book. Exactly. It's alchemy, right? And you, you bring up Halt and it's like, it's it's the cast, but it's also like, this DP that comes in to, to, that steps in to replace this DP who had to leave and, and then brings this in. And then, you know, it, it, all of those things, you know, this, this costume designer, this wardrobe person, um, this casting director, you know what I mean? Like this casting director who has a certain eye for, you know, but the casting director that I worked with on Halt and Catch Fire, who, who, you know, they helped us put together those, those five, which is insane. In addition to the guest stars we had, which are nuts, um, you know, she then they went off and found a 13 year old deaf boy in a, a, a open casting call for the movie I directed. And it was a kid who who found the post, which was meant for the States in Canada, but he was in the UK at boarding school and recorded himself against pictures of the um, screenplay. And she had the eye through thousands of tapes to go, wait a minute and had him tape again. And then we flew this kid out from Newcastle. You know what I mean? And his, we, his parents didn't even know he had auditioned. You know, like we, we, we had to call his parents and be like, uh, your son's auditioned for a major feature film in Canada. So we, we think you <laughs> want to bring him out in Canada. Like you just got to find the right, the right collaborators. It's, it's, comics is, what's wonderful about comics is it's a, a collective medium. What's wonderful about TV and film are their collective mediums. And you know, there is the, the auteur theory and all of that stuff but like at the end of the day fuck it like it's not it's 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 come on you know what i mean it's it's a lot of people um 
bringing a lot of amazing things. And it's, it's that kismet, it's that alchemy in that exact moment, like you said, right? And that's what makes it special. Yeah, and again, I go back to the fact that you've been lucky enough in, in your comics career to not only work with really talented people, but people who love comics. I mean, you're, you're to, to talk a little bit about Iron Man for a, a few minutes here. Uh, I, I've met Kafu. I've met him at San Diego Comic-Con. I have a, an amazing Superman commission from him. Here's oh. another guy who just loves comics, and you can tell he's having a blast telling your Iron Man story. Really, it's, it's the Iron, both of your Iron Man story yeah, at this point. Story. Yeah. And, and then uh, one, I'm jealous you met him in person. I haven't gotten to, um, which is kind of the amazing thing about technology these days, but also, you know, uh, kind of sad because I'm like, I want to, but hopefully with the pandemic lifting, I can hang out with him um, at a con maybe next year, who knows. Right. Um, but then you've got like Tom Brevoort, who, I mean, I got to do, I got to participate in a, in a game show where it was um, uh, trying to stump him with uh, trivia questions, which is impossible. You talk yeah. about a person who loves comic books. I mean, I've talked about Tom being a person where if there was a Oracle on top of a very high misty mountain who opened a comic book shop, it would, and you went to that comic book shop, it would be run by Tom. Tom, Tom would yeah. be the Oracle. Yeah. Yeah. That's the sniff test for comic books um, is, is do people love, comic books or are they in it for different reasons that's actually the that's really the sniff test for tv and film too because everybody will be like i love tv have you seen this have you seen that but you know when you really strike upon someone who really loves it you know i was just having a conversation with a producer the other day and i mentioned that i'd seen in the last few weeks i've seen california split and long goodbye two robert altman movies with elliot gould and he went crazy he was like, you just listed two of my favorite movies of all time. And we started just texting quotes of it back and forth to each other. And there's nothing to do with the project we're working on. But that kind of um, zealotry is, is um, it's worth its weight in gold. Maybe more, probably more, definitely more. Yeah, well, I agree. And, and, and this is the thing about Tom's love of comics. What it allows him to do, I think, is it allows him to bring on the right creators at the right time for a particular character to... Be sure that that character is their legacy is being sort of respected. And, uh, you know, in, in specifically in the case of Tony Stark and Iron Man, we did sort of need a, a reset. You know, he I feel like he'd kind of drifted over time with the Robert Downey Jr. portrayal of kind of getting away from who he was uh, originally. And I know that you kind of, you know, were a big fan of the same era I was. Uh, you know, in that kind of right around issue 200 and the armor wars and stuff. And you, you and Kafu and and the team have really sort of been telling the story of him getting back to basics. Uh, and it's been a blast for me because of, that's my Iron Man. You seem to be enjoying it. Does it seem like fans are getting, uh, are they're, they're get they're picking up what you're putting down, so to speak? I think so. At least the ones that I'm hearing. I mean, I know there's a ton out there who don't like it. You know what I mean? And I have heard from them too, but you know, that's okay. Um, you know, again, some of them are, some people get a little skewed in terms of what they're really looking for and what they want. And sometimes making that gel with what is actually a fresh and interesting and engaging approachable story can be difficult. Um, but again, you mentioned, you know, um, you know, Robert Downey Jr. It's like, that's what happens when you do something so kind of groundbreaking with the character, it becomes the new standard, right? Mm -hmm. And then things are in that shadow for a while. But I do think like, again, going back to, to Dan Slott, like, you know, just taking that, that man and machine story so far where he went with Tony Stark, Iron Man, and then Iron Man 2020, this idea of like AI rights and machine wars and all of that stuff was very, it was fascinating. It was really a kind of Ray Kurzweil approach to the material is very heady and kind of effervescent and, and, uh, and cool. I love the kind of like hard, you know, edged sci-fi component of that. But yeah, I felt like Dan had had really driven that car to the ocean, you right. know, parked it, left the keys in and gotten out. And it's like, well, I have to go. I'm not going to just drive the car into the underwater now. I right. probably turn around and figure out somewhere else to go. And so that's where what came out of it was like my love of cars it was like it was hands-on mechanics, like kind of oily rags, you know, cranked wrenches that kind of stuff which is kind of how i grew up and was my way into the character that felt right and and i will say that like i you know i i love 
there's a specific kind of, there's specific stories I love of Iron Man, but I also love and respect the character and Marvel and comics as a medium in itself to go do my research. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? And also know when to not do so much research and get lost and not be able to see the forest from the trees. Like the, the, the car mechanic thing, the idea of hands-on putting your guts into the, the, the metal of the machine piece I had to find that first myself. I was like, how can I key into this character on a real visceral level for myself? And then be like, okay, let's go back and look at a lot of this stuff. Cause like when I was a kid, I was reading a lot of Spider-Man, a lot of X-Men. I wasn't reading a lot of Iron Man, but then I went back and I read a lot of Iron Man and I found stories that really kind of rose out and spoke to me. And, and I, I was like, this is incredible. I, this resonates with me. Um, and then pull from that. You know, like that, that, and, and draw, draw inspiration from that. And then also say, what's something new? I mean, that's the creative challenge in of itself with a character that's that old, you know, what can you yeah. do that's completely different? Yeah. It's, it's great because I see the, again, you're getting back to the, the roots of Tony and I, that's the Tony that I grew up with where he was hands-on. Uh, and we saw mm-hmm. a little bit of the MCU, but then as time went on, both in the comics and in the MCU, it was just Tony you know, talking to his smart technology, just basically make me a, a suit. And he, he wasn't hands-on anymore. And you know what it reminded me of? It reminded me of, uh, of Gordon Clark. Have you uh, ever had your hands on the metal? You know, yeah, close, you to the metal. close to close the metal. Yeah, close to the metal, man. I almost said that earlier when I was just talking about it. It's that that's definitely where it comes from, which is, yeah, you know, Gordon, Gordon getting shocked by the, you know, the live current inside the open PC as he's working yeah. on it late at night, you know, like that there's another personal connection there for me with Tony too. So it's really just like, you know, you, you open up a bunch of different older sheet music that you responded to in different ways and kind of have it all set up for yourself on the bench and then try to play something impromptu, you know, is the best way I can describe it. And the other thing that I love about what you're doing with Iron Man, we just had a a spotlight, basically a spotlight issue on, uh, on Patsy Walker. Uh, Uh, We're about to have one on, on Korvac himself. And, you know, I, I know you get to, Hey, this is, this says Iron Man on the, you know what? Patsy Walker is one of the oldest characters in the Marvel universe. And I feel like she still hasn't gotten her due. Uh, and Korvac is one of the great all-time villains and he's been on the shelf for decades. I'm glad somebody's finally bringing him back. Uh, so to, to anybody who's listening to this, who's an Iron Man fan who may be feeling that Tony's not showing up enough. Can you just give, give, Chris, the benefit of the doubt, trust him as a writer. I promise we're going to get there. Um, I will also say that I did not expect for these issues to land right in the middle of Heroes Reborn. Oh, we right. were also going to take a month off in between those issues. So it is, look, I'm a mate, like again, Tom and, and Marvel letting me do this, where even the, I love Patsy and I, 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 I've made that clear and I love writing her and, it, and there was a reason I just, Chose her as kind of a foil for Tony in the story and the counterbalance. And there's a reason I chose Korvac after doing a lot of research about him. You know, but again, another comic fan, um, Dinesh Samdasani, who used to run Valiant, he was the one who told me about Korvac at dinner maybe three years ago. And I'm a big comic fan. He was like, here's the here's the best, here's the best villain in 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 comic history, and walked me through it. And I loved it so much. I almost tried to work him into Doctor Doom. And then when I got to do Iron Man, I was like, can I do the quarterback? And then Al Ewing had done that one page story, which is an amazing kickoff for what, what we were able to do. But again, even their solo issues, Patsy and Korvac, like those are meant to reflect on Tony. Like it's mm-hmm. still Iron Man story. I just wanted to try something crazy. And, and which was to, to not have in the book. <laughs> it's just the same. And Tom was like, yeah, man. It was like, I think it works. And, and those stories are meant to enrich his story further. So when, when he comes back into contact with those two characters, who are the other two most important characters in his story right now, it's, that's the triangle. It's Korvac, Patsy, and Tony. So that when he comes back into their orbit, we're carrying all that baggage with them. They're carrying their, their personal experiences. He's carrying what he's going to come back with, which was, is two solo issues on his own. And then they're going to come back together. So it's, it's all meant to be thematic. It's all meant to be, um, of a piece. And, and Korvac, it's like, you know, I want to go back and like 
tell the Korvac story as one, one kind of fluid story with like emotion and bring our themes into it and see if I can make it work. I just saw the lettering pass for the Korvac issue and I think it's pretty rad. And it includes a character in it that I have wanted to write since I was, before I could write. He's yeah. in it as well. There's a, there's, I, a, there's a new character in there too. Yeah, I'm very excited to read the Korvac issue. I've always been a, a big fan of him and wondered why you know, he, he wasn't, isn't used more. Uh, and I'm, I'm very curious cause I, I want to, I'm very curious about what my own reaction is w when I read it, what I take from it. Cause I, I always have to read your stuff at least two or three times. Uh, and so what I mean by that with the Korvac, I'm curious is because when I, so when I read the Patsy issue, I was very much kind of focused on Patsy and really, okay, th this is a Patsy story. She, she, she's overdue to be focused on. It wasn't until I read it the second time that I thought to myself, you know, you could swap out Patsy for Tony. And other than the actual mental powers thing, this is still talking about Tony in a way with, he doesn't know. And especially now, like we talked about with the different sort of iterations and the influence of RDJ and the MCU, maybe now more than ever, he's less aware of who he actually is. He doesn't feel as grounded and it, and it feels like that's, the end goal for your story, which, you know, you don't necessarily have to, to say, but I, I feel like once we get to the end of your run, Tony's going to know who the hell he is, right? Right at that moment, at least. Yes. And I, I that's the goal at least. And I, I think you're, you're hitting upon something. I think that's what I'm at least trying to do. And again, people are, <laughs> maybe I'm not, I'm trying, right? Like <laughs> I'm, I'm trying my best, but uh, you know, Patsy is that, that whole issue is about overcoming um, her own fears right and what she's actually afraid of which is losing herself and and disappearing and the Korvac issue is already been set up at the end of iron man 7 is very much an issue about self-doubt and reckoning with your past he also has to reckon with his past just like patsy does in in uh in issue eight so that's what Korvac is dealing with. And Korvac is also coming at it from a place of no one understands me. He's getting frustrated that no one understands him. Well, that's exactly what Tony struggles with in our book as well, is no one understands me. No one sees what I'm trying to do. And in Tony's story, he's going to be reckoning with his past as well. There's going to be key moments from his past that are coming up in new ways. And, and he's trying to figure that out and figure out what he wants, like who he wants to be as a hero. Yeah, well, uh, like I said, it's it's there's so many layers to it. Uh, and I feel like every time I, I read it, I could pick up something different from it, which is, oh, you know, you. we, we all could use more value from our comics with the, the way the prices are these days. So I always appreciate that as well. <laughs> uh, is there anything else that you're, that you're working on that you can, uh, that you can tease comics wise? Boy, well, I know that, you know, my first book I ever did was something called she could fly. And we did two volumes of that. Mm -hmm. And, uh, there should be more news about future. She could fly very soon in a way that I'm really excited about where Martine and I will be able to close that story out in a way that I think is pretty, pretty cool. And I'm really, really thrilled that we get to do that and hope some folks read it. You know, I, I just walked in, but it's fun when I meet she could fly fans, it's funny because they're, there's a small, very small group, but very fervent, and it's the only book they want to talk about in terms of stuff I've worked on. So there's that. And, uh, you know, there's a couple other creative creator owned books that are, that are going to, that are percolating right now and I'm working on and, and they'll start to be announced here and there. And, and, uh, and yeah, there is one, there is one book that I'm, there's one book that I'm taking over for a character that is not mine that I'm very excited about. And if you scrub back through this episode, maybe you could, uh, you might be able to figure out <laughs> what it relates to, but I'm very, very excited for that. And that's coming. That's going to, that's going to land at some point this year too, I think later in the year. Fantastic. Uh, yeah. well, you know, I mean, she, she could fly. I'm very happy to hear that. I think I saw you teasing something on social media. That's kind of why I asked, you know, that's the first uh, book that I read of, of yours and, and the way we met, uh, you know, me interviewing at the dark horse booth. That's uh, right. I'm, yeah, I love that story. Uh, and I, yeah, I'm, I'm really excited for this. And, you know, obviously I don't talk about it too much because the announcement and, you know, I want Karen to get her due and everything, but I, I just to be able to close that out with Karen and, 
and Martine and Miroslav and, and, and Clem, I think it's, it's going to be really great to, to finish it out. Um, and it's going to, I, it, we, I aimed to do something very different with this than what I'd done previously with the first two volumes and try to take a lot of, try to take the experience I've gained since and what to me is the most important resonant part of that book and really just distill it down to that. And I, wow. I think, I think we have something pretty cool. Yeah. I, I'm glad to hear that because I was going to say that the thing about she could fly, you know, I, I read, I've read all your books. I've read all, you know, all your comic work. I, I love it. Um, but for me, she could fly is what feels most like you on a page. Like when I'm reading that book, you know, because we do know each other personally, I, that's the book to me that feels the most true to who you are, because I know how much of yourself, uh, you know, your own personal struggles and, and such that you've put into that. So mm -hmm. to get to go back and, and now add the experience that you've gained since you, you know, first did that. I, I think that's fantastic. Kind of a, putting a period at the end of the sentence. Yeah, no, exactly. And, and, and also just in terms of it's, a, it's an allegory for my, my comic work too, is that like, you know, Luna started as a kid in that story, she's 15 and, and this one she'll be um, an adult mm. barely. And I feel that way a little bit in comics now, which is I'm an adult barely <laughs> in the comics industry. So it's, it's definitely, uh, that's how I'm approaching it. Well, it's fantastic. And it's been a pleasure talking to you as always, Christopher. Uh, I'm so glad, I'm so glad uh, that you're in the world of, of comics. And of course, you know, you have the, the paper girls show that's still in development at, at Amazon and I'm sure news will be forthcoming at the uh, appropriate time, everybody. So be patient, stay tuned. It's going to be amazing. Uh, I'll remind everybody that Blue Flame, the final order cutoff is on May 3rd. So you have a, a little bit of time to let your retailers know. Um, and just like Christopher and I were saying, Vault is a, a smaller publisher. So there's no guarantee that your retailers ordering their books are going to have Blue Flame on the stand. So please, please, please pre-order. Do yourself a favor because there's nothing worse than saying, ah, I'm just going to pick up a, a you know copy off the shelf. Maybe your retailer only ordered two and by the time you get there, it's, it's not there. Right. So the best thing you can do to help out Vault and your retailer and Christopher and Adam and Kurt and uh, and Hassan and everybody, just just let them know next time you stop in to pick up your books. Hey, I want Blue Flame number one. Uh, be sure and order me a copy. Awesome. Thank uh, you. So, yeah, it's my pleasure, Christopher. And uh, remind everybody where you can be found online. Uh, so when oh, announcements come, Twitter at, at if you can't well. It's my dad's joke and how he used to explain the spelling of our name to people on the phone. So there you go. If you <laughs> there can, you go. that's me. All right, great. And I'll, everybody, I'll put a link to uh, Christopher's Twitter in the show notes. So if you can't find it, which I mean, literally go to Twitter, type if you can't, well, you'll find it. Uh, and uh, I, I do recommend following uh, Christopher, not just so you know when he has stuff coming out, but this, he loves to tweet out. He, he's one of us. He's got the action figures. He's got the Star War, or Star Trek stuff. A lot of Star uh, Trek, a lot yeah. of comics, a lot of toys. Yes. Yeah, it's a lot of yeah. fun to uh, to follow him. So uh, give him a follow. And uh, best of luck with Blue Flame. Uh, wish you nothing but the best. First issue is fantastic. I can't wait for more. Uh, and like I said, great to, great to see you. Great to chat. Same. Thank you for having me on. Uh, and to all you listeners, thank you for your support as always, and we will talk to you next time. You can find the Comic Source Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, or whichever podcasting app you prefer. Please tell all your friends about us, subscribe, and rate us. The ratings really help with our visibility and our ability to reach new listeners, especially five-star reviews on Apple. Also be sure to visit us at lrmonline.com to join the conversation, access the show notes, and discover all our other great pop culture content. If you want to email us, the email address is thecomicsourceblog at gmail.com, or you can follow us on Twitter, twitter.com forward slash thecomicsource. Do a search for The Comic Source on Facebook and Instagram to follow us on those social platforms. All three spots are great places to find out when we release new episodes as well as follow all our convention coverage. So once again, we want to thank everyone for listening and we'll talk to you next time.